Please be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. I'm always pleasantly surprised by how obsessed the scriptures are with the act of eating. The gospel lessons for the first three Sundays in Trinity Tide address the consequences of dining habits and the cultural practice of table fellowship. For first century Jews, table fellowship was governed by an elaborate set of rules that symbolically expressed who a person was, by how and with whom they ate. For pious people, eating was charged with meaning, conveying how one related to God and to others. These last three gospel lessons all take up this practice of table fellowship to unveil who shall enter the kingdom of God. Our Lord's account of the rich man and poor Lazarus two weeks ago revealed how the rich who scorn the poor and refuse them nourishment of the crumbs from under their table become defined by the character of that scorn and thus create for themselves a personal hell defined by alienation. So too, our Lord's parable of the wedding feast last week revealed that it is the sojourners and wanderers, the displaced of the highways and the hedges, who are able to recognize the grace of table hospitality and receive the Lord's bounteous feast. And today, our Lord's habit of sharing table with tax collectors shows that it is the sinful rather than the sanctimonious who are capable of sitting to commune with Jesus. We see on display the symbolic nature of eating together by the complaint the Pharisees and scribes level at Jesus, quote, this man receives sinners and eats with them, end quote. Table fellowship is a matter of affiliation and affinity. To eat with someone is to declare kinship with them, a willingness to let one's guard down, a to partake of the kind of intimacy that only comes from renewing the embarrassing frailty of one's life in the company of another, of acknowledging that need together. The Pharisees and scribes are scandalized because Jesus, a rabbi and a prophet, makes these so-called unworthies into kindreds and suggests that they belong at the same table as people like themselves. He is breaking the social rules, yes, but their horror arises more out of the symbolic statement that what is tainted belongs in any way with what is pure. Why does Jesus do this? It isn't merely to violate cultural or religious norms. Jesus is too often seen in the Gospels to be a very observant and faithful Jewish man. It could be a matter of sheer necessity. As my mom has humorously quipped before, Jesus ate with sinners because Jesus did not like eating alone. It's a good bit of southern wit. But I think it contains the very truth we're after here. Jesus' habits of table fellowship and his parables show that the distance that ought to divide him from us is far greater 
and more significant than any distance we allow to divide us from one another and from him. By overcoming the so-called unbridgeable gap, our Lord shames the artificial gaps that we create, those obstacles we set in the path of communion with each other and ultimately with God. The scribes and Pharisees miss the significance of those who were deemed unreachable being brought near to Christ. Even one lost person is so precious to God that their return moves the joy of heaven itself. For the teachers of Israel to murmur at this miracle only reveals how blind they are to see the kingdom of God in their midst. In the epistle lesson, St. Peter names the two responses to our Lord's invitation to be received and found again as the spiritual habits of pride and humility. Each of these habits orients us in opposite ways toward God and neighbor, and God relates very differently to each of these habits. Quote, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, end quote. This teaching does not originate with St. Peter, but with Christ, who, in another table fellowship parable in Luke chapter 14, speaks about trying to assert status at a dinner party by choosing a more dignified seat than others, concluding that, quote, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted, end quote. Again, in Matthew 23, Jesus explains the character of these two tendencies in the story of the Pharisee and the sinner, praying before the holy place of the temple. The proud Pharisee uses his time of prayer to debase the sinner sitting next to him and misses the opportunity to commune with God, whereas the sinner does not even look to God but asks that unseen God for a continuous mercy upon him. Spiritual pride is ultimately a blindness to one's position before God and neighbor. Spiritual humility, by contrast, assumes that one is much blinder than they'd like to be and seeks and asks for the sight to truly see themselves and others. The proud are blind because they fixate on fabricating a sense of themselves, resisting the gift of their true self which God manifests over a long time, both directly through prayer and through his anointed community, the church. The spiritually humble resolve to wait with patience until the Lord makes clear who they are, holding with an open hand all dignity and all shame, until they are confirmed by the one who really knows. They resolve, like St. Paul, not to, quote, pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, end quote. St. Peter sees these purposes of the heart as being disclosed by suffering. Suffering is the natural experience of a world and a people who, since their calamitous act of eating poorly, of eating without God at the beginning, 
have exiled themselves from the life and love of God. Suffering is the experience of pain, yes, but it is pain mixed with the despair that whispers that the pain will always have the final word. Suffering is a revealer and an arbiter. It shakes all appearances to reveal what substance is actually there for good or ill. Suffering shakes the pretenses of pride and either turns us after it is shaken beyond ourselves back to God, or else it becomes for us the occasion of a nightmare, of being turned inward on ourselves and trapped there as we rage vainly against our need for God. Suffering brings to an unflinching light both humility and pride where they exist within us, revealing the opportunity for grace in one and the futility of the other. This morning, we receive again in the midst of our need, our adversity, our affliction, and our suffering, the invitation to share table fellowship with our Lord in the Eucharist. As we say in the prayer of humble access, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs from under his table. And yet, his property is always to have mercy. He always draws near to heal. He always makes kindreds out of strangers. And to be known by him in this way is life. But in our gospel is a warning As with the scribes and Pharisees, we can come so close to accepting that invitation and still refuse it out of pride. The proud refuse the opportunity to sit with the Savior because they cannot overcome their disdain for the others at his table. They posture so well at being close to God that they exile themselves from him. The humble, by contrast, know that they have no standing upon which to refuse any whom the Lord welcomes, and so keep their silence and watch for what he will do with all of them together. Only those who have suffered the world's brokenness and their own powerlessness and lostness in the midst of that world know how much they need that invitation to come and be found again. And that common need, it turns out, makes a strange brethren again out of those who were previously and vainly divided. How will you come to meet the Lord this morning? In each of us is both the sinner who cries out and the Pharisee who postures. Each time we receive his invitation, we choose more who we will become before the Lord when he appears. Will we be the proud, whom he resists and overcomes, or the humble, whom he heals and exalts? Our Lord will offer himself to us now in the Blessed Sacrament, communing with all those who will receive him. He is calling now all the poor and wandering sinners to come in, and to be fed. And it's okay to let go and to receive 
what he has for you this morning. Accept the invitation to his table. Because remember, he really does not like eating alone. As Jesus said, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.